Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. This is episode 122. The fact is that if we can't come out, it's not our fault. It's the reality of the society that we live in that only tells queer people to come out and that puts us away to come out from somewhere in the first place. Blair Amani is a critically acclaimed historian, author, educator, and influencer living at the intersections of Black, bisexual, and Muslim identity. Her viral micro-learning series, Smarter in Seconds, has earned over 100 million views and demonstrates her signature style of making abstract concepts more concrete in a well-researched, well-presented, and concise manner. She's the author of Read This to Get Smarter, about race, class, gender, disability, and more, which comes out this fall. Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration and the Black American Dream, which came out last year, and Modern Herstory, Stories of Women and Non-Binary People Rewriting History, which came out in 2018. Blair's work centers women and girls, global Black communities, and the LGBTQ community. As an educator and influencer, semi-retired organizer, and public speaker, Blair is dedicated to making the world a better place and amplifying the voices and work of those fighting the good fight. I am thrilled to have Blair on the show today. I'm not sure if it's possible to be a queer person on the internet and not have run across Blair's work. Maybe it is. And if you haven't run into Blair's work, you're in for a treat today. I've been following her for years at this point, and it just feels kind of like a dream come true to have her on the show. So no announcements today. Let's just go ahead and dive in. Blair, hi, welcome. Thank you for having me, Matthias. I'm really excited to get into it today. Oh, me too. So to start, the question I ask everyone, how do you identify and how has your faith helped form that identity? So I identify as a Black, bisexual, Muslim woman in that order. And I would definitely say that it's been informed by my faith because I add Muslim to it, you know? Um, And I think that I want to say Muslim again because it sounded really weird. Um, But I, you know, it definitely informs who I am because I added Muslim to it. And so I think that when I first converted to Islam in 2015, I didn't overtly declare myself as bisexual. I wasn't totally closeted. But as far as how I introduced myself to people the first time, I wouldn't add that to it. That's completely different from who I am today. Like, it's really interesting because it wasn't necessarily because I think a lot of assumptions people make is that oh, if you're a person of faith, then you must be homophobic or dealing with internalized homophobia. And that's something that a lot of people experience regardless of whether or not they're people of faith. I just felt like I had too many identity labels. I was like, okay, well, I'm black. People know that. I'm Muslim now. And I'm in a relationship that's straight passing. So why would I say that? You know, like, why would I say that openly? And I just realized like how much it's a part of us. And it was so much, it was internalized homophobia, but not in the sense that people might anticipate coming from a religious space, but really coming from a heteronormative space. And so me being bisexual and being Muslim isn't the most shocking thing to me. I mean, we wake up and we know who we are, but sometimes it's about 
determining how to best express that self-understanding externally. And sometimes faith is a part of that. And I think that becoming Muslim was one of the best decisions I made in my life. And it was really the way that I got close to God. And it wasn't so much that it was Islam. It was just the right path for me. I would love to hear kind of more about that. I mean, especially as you're saying, like becoming Muslim was like maybe the best choice that you've made in life. Like, I I would love to hear some of that journey, what it was like to even convert to a different religion. Like, what kind of went into that decision and process for you? So the fun thing is it's actually a very open religion. So if anyone's interested, just head over to your local mosque. It's it's very like low barrier conversion process. And I think that's really beautiful. Like when I would first go to the mosque, um, let me back all the way up. So before I was Muslim, it's interesting because I actually grew up in an environment where there were a lot of Muslims. There were a lot of, you know, just different people of faith. And I say a lot of Muslims, like there were more than a few Muslim families, you know? So I grew up in an environment where the Muslim families that were around, I think it was like two or three families were educators. And so when a lot of children started to get bullied following 9-11, these families took it upon themselves to come into the school and start educating us about Islam. And I thought that was a really beautiful and innovative approach because you have to replace fear with education. And after you get to that point, once folks actually know what it is, a lot of folks will choose the path of humanity and trust. And some people don't. And then you have to make a judgment call based on that. But I remember doing this. Well, actually, I didn't remember. I didn't remember doing this exercise. I remember having, you know, my friend Hassan's mother come and educate us about Islam and the Hajj and the five pillars. But it wasn't until after I converted that my mom pulled something out of our little, you know, like storage closet. And it was this illustration I had done when I was a kid where I had taken construction paper, folded it into five panels, illustrated the five pillars of Islam and said at the bottom, one day I want to be Muslim. (laughs) So that was eight-year-old Blair. That was also the time that I figured out I was queer because I vividly remember standing on the playground, realizing that I definitely had a crush on this guy and his sister. And it wasn't because they looked alike. It was because I had a crush on this guy and his sister, and I didn't know what that meant. So eight years old was a big discovery time. It was also the the year that I learned that I had ADHD. Like, it was a big self-discovery time. <laughs> but taking it back to, like, okay, so flash forward from that point, which was lost in my memory, I was organizing a lot of vigils at Louisiana State University for people who had been killed by vigilante violence, police violence, and predominantly Black folks, you know, as part of me being in the Black community. But then there was the horrible shooting of the students in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the three students there. And it felt really false for us to stand up for every person who had been killed by police and vigilante violence, who we were more familiar with their community, and then to be silent about the Muslim students that had been killed. So I very boldly reached out to all of the Muslim organizations around campus, around the state, And I sent all of these emails and they're kind of templatized, basically being like, I'm not a Muslim. I'm familiar with Islam, but regardless, uh, you're part of our community and we want to hold space for you as well. And this is like my, I don't know, 19 year old, 20 year old naivete. And it went really well, honestly. Sometimes when 
we're in doubt about how to best approach things. We just have to lead with humanity. And that's what I tried to do. And that humanity was received. We had a beautiful vigil. I look completely burnt out. Like there is video of it on YouTube, but I look completely burnt out because I really was, I was exhausted. And one of the things I say during that vigil is like, I'm not a Muslim. And it's funny because like less than a year later, I would become Muslim. And that's partially because so many of the Islamic centers that we had reached out to to hold space with were so overwhelmed and appreciative that they said, if you all need space to organize or to recharge, like our doors are open to you. And we actually really did because it was a really hostile organizing environment, whether it was for LGBTQ rights, racial justice, etc. So we took them up on that offer and I started going to the mosque. And the first time I went to the mosque, people were just, they assumed I was Muslim Um, they just really welcomed me. Like usually when I would be into new spaces, I would be racialized first. So like, what race are you? What category do I put you into according to race? And when I was in the Muslim community, it wasn't like that. It was just straight up like, what's up sister, you know? And that felt really awesome. And of course in the black community, I was pretty much understood to be black. So like I was never racialized in that way or like asked to explain who I was first. And so the only other space I ever felt that way in was in the mosque. And that was really cathartic because I think in the queer community in Baton Rouge, there was such a fear of people infiltrating or taking up space or being harmful, but there was a little bit of gatekeeping as well. And so there was no gatekeeping at the mosque. And I just started going regularly. I eventually had a really good connection with a group of sisters and then did something called the Shahada, which is similar to the Lord's Prayer, if you're more familiar with Christianity. But essentially, that's what is the basis for your conversion. You declare yourself a Muslim. You declare yourself to understand the faith to the best of your knowledge and declare that this is something that you wanted to do on your own. And boom, I became a Muslim. I'm so fascinated by like these spaces of kind of faith evolution because i mean if if i remember from some of your story that i've heard before like you did grow up religious and and so this was a, a shift of faith as opposed to kind of finding faith i mean would that be a fair way to describe it well it's kind of complex so my parents are what i call southern california christian liberal where like they're christian but Not like in name only, like a false sense, but just pretty much like they go with the flow. They're more about doing good works than they are being belonging to like any individual church. The way that my parents tithe is like if somebody needs help making a rent payment or getting their car fixed or getting their dental work done, they're going to pay for that and do direct aid and mutual aid. And it's been fun for me to explain to my parents that they're kind of socialists and for them to start accepting that. Um, (laughs) But basically, you know, in true millennial fashion, you know, but essentially like my parents are Christian. And so we would, you know, whenever we had a a big family gathering, my great grandfather, he was really active in the church and my father kind of took on that mantle and would be really supportive. But this really unfortunate thing happened where our local church was victim to embezzlement. And that was really jading for us because my dad was a big donor and like, that was a violation, you know? And then my parents were like, you know what? I would rather do more of this direct aid that we've been doing for such a long time than wonder where the money's going or the money's only going to the coffers of the church and start to be more transformative in that way. But we, you know, celebrate Christmas, Easter, and it wasn't so much our emphasis on Christ, but an emphasis on family and community. I always had a struggle with, you know, part of the Christ story. And it just like, 
you know, I understood the virtues of it and the values of it. It just never resonated with me as something that I believed in. And in Islam, we do believe, you know, Jesus Christ existed and was one of the great prophets. Like, you know, Jesus as Isa appears in the, in the Bible and the Quran, like equal, you know, amounts of times. And so it's definitely part of the story, but it definitely resonates with me more. But as far as like the culture and the misinformation around Islam, that was a big barrier for my parents' understanding. Like I like to joke and not even joke because it's true. Like when I told my parents I was queer, they were like, cool, sounds great. And I told them, I told my mom that I was Muslim. She was like, okay, what? Do I need to come down there? Are you okay? Like definitely a vibe that a lot of people experience when they come out as LGBT, just because my mom had such fear and apprehension and misinformation around Islam. And so we were religious, but not I think when when we say religious in the context of the United States, I think people think, you know, religious fundamentalists, they think white Christian evangelicals. But I was always, you know, arguing with the evangelicals in my community because I'm a Scorpio. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I always had a very expansive understanding of religion, like not to be afraid to lead with love, to do good works and to like try to live out that image of perfection that eludes us as people of faith that we try to achieve every single day. And I just found the stories and the culture and the communities within Islam to be something I resonated with. Like it felt like I was a puzzle piece that was like I fit in perfectly instead of trying to contort myself to fit in. Oh, I really like the way you said that. Like, I mean, what's coming to mind, it feels almost like you you kind of found a home, like a place where you could kind of flourish and, and become instead of having to, like you just said, kind of fit yourself in somewhere. And part of that process, that's exactly right. Part of that process was the democratic kind of one-to-one nature of Islam. Like in the mosque that I was attending, there wasn't necessarily like, a preacher figure where we come in, we hear a sermon and we go, it was really like, you're there to be with God and to be in community with other people who are speaking to God. And beyond that, there's no like gatekeeping in terms of like, oh, well, what are you wearing? Why are you here? What are your motivations? Like generally after people understood that you're in the right location, are you here for the mosque? Yeah, I'm here for the mosque. Awesome. Boom. Like next step. And that was really welcoming. I mean, that's how my parents are with people. Like if you're in their space and you're in community, it's not like a step of gatekeeping or keeping people out. It's like, awesome. Let's move on to the next step of having this shared human experience. And I think just the nature of that one-to-one relationship with God, so many of my peers at the mosque, like I would be like, okay, what does this surah mean? What does this part mean? What are these hadiths? And they wouldn't tell me the answer. And that's so much like my parents as well. Like my parents, they would always say, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but how to think. And so I had to go on this journey of self-discovery and determining what made sense for me on my terms. And then I could be in conversation with people about it, but it wasn't going to be something where I could like copy somebody else's Islamic homework and then come to their conclusion instead of mine. And I really appreciated that because the Christianity that I grew up in was so divorced from the actual scripture. It was really mired in class. It was really mired in appearance. And of course that exists in Islam. But I think that at the time and place that I was in my own personal journey and the circumstances of the mosque that I was attending, it was such a scholarly focused space, probably because it was in a college town, but it really ended up being 
the ripe time. And the other aspect of it is as a historian, I was taking classes on reconstruction in the United States, the period after enslavement. I was taking classes on Tudor England when the King James Bible was created. And I became so uncomfortable with the way that Christianity was indoctrinated to my my enslaved ancestors. And that became something where I felt like I couldn't really engage with it in the same way as I could previously, especially with all the trauma and hurt that I previously mentioned. You said something here kind of at the beginning about replacing fear with education. And I feel like even in the way that you're kind of telling your story, like you're talking about your parents and and how like coming in like quotation marks coming out as Muslim to them was a kind of a bigger deal than coming out as queer. And, and, And that feels like you had to probably do some educating there. I also feel like with so much of your life, at least the the kind of public life that that we see, is dedicated to this kind of educational way of being in the world. And and I'm I'm so curious about that. Like, what what kind of brought you into this space of I need to educate? And I imagine it's so unstoried in who you are. <laughs> oh yes, I mean. So my brand now is about getting smarter. My followers are called Smarties. And I really am interested now in interrogating how we define intelligence because at a baseline, intelligence is how we absorb and duplicate information, the way that we acquire skills, knowledge, and apply it. And we do that every single day. And I really get irritated with the conflation of intelligence and ability. Like there's even terminology like intellectual disability. And there are cognitive disabilities, right? Relating to cognition and how thinking processes happen and development, the way that those processes develop. But To say that somebody's intellectually disabled is really a misnomer and goes back to this idea that, like, people used to be classified as idiot and insane as a matter of science, with big quotes. And so that partially is because I I myself have something that they call an intellectual disability. And ADHD is a cognitive disability related to development, related to these different processes of thinking and understanding. And that's, that's an important real thing to say, you know? It's not denying that existence. But to then say that I am not intelligent is something that I've really grappled with. My younger sister is also autistic. And so, like, really getting to a place of understanding, like, it's not a matter of a lack of intelligence or an inability to acquire intelligence or demonstrate intelligence. It's really the failures and the limitations of how society depicts that and determines that. Because if we all have to take the same test, if I have to take a standardized math test, I'm not going to look intelligent. But if you have an essay question, I'm going to knock it out of the park. And that's become such a part of who I am. And it's also because, you know, I would go to speech therapy with my younger sister. We would go to tactile integration therapy together and really seeing like so many of the things that we had access to because my parents, they're like kind of informal social workers, seeing how they had access to these things and how we were given access to these things and how that fundamentally changed my trajectory and hers as well. Being able to have early intervention of determining that I have ADHD at eight years old And then have accommodations for that instead of just failing out of my classes and then being told by teachers that I couldn't or I wouldn't or I shouldn't be able to completely changed my life. And so that's really, really, really important to me. And I think, too, because as the only Black girl in my classes, 
all through middle school and into high school is when I first had other Black people in my classes. I felt the ambas- like I was the ambassador of Black people. And it was helped by the fact that Senator Barack Obama, President Barack Obama now, was running for office. And I felt as though I was the ambassador of all Black people. And I was also kind of treated that way by, like, parents at the school, like who would kind of get out of their car during pickup time and get out and ask me what I thought as young Black America, because I was probably the only Black person in their sphere of reference. And so that was a big part of it. I definitely was kind of put on the spot as the spokesperson for all of Black America. And honestly, what a great training ground for somebody who is a public figure and public speaker, but definitely a lot of pressure. But I felt like that was just inherent. Like I felt like you wake up, You get perfectly dressed because you have to represent your entire community. And if you don't, then it's your fault. And you go out and you be as much yourself as you can be, but do it in a way that is educational, where if we were learning about things like slavery or enslavement and the teacher misspoke, oh, it's now my job to correct that lesson as a seven-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old. And... Honestly, it was really revolutionary because I think I learned at a very young age that there's no such thing as an infallible authoritarian force and that I have the power to create a change. But at the same time, there was zero days in class, Matthias, where I didn't raise my hand and say something because I felt like I could not. And it's actually really interesting to me to think back on that now as an adult who now teaches kids Because I see those kids in my class who feel like they have to speak up every day. And for me, it wasn't so much like a duty to this respectability, like doctrine. It was a duty to my other classmates that if I don't do this, they are not going to be informed. If I don't speak up, I would be the kid where other students were afraid to ask a question and would come to me during recess and ask me if I could ask that question. So like I was community organizing, (laughs) Um, but that was just my life. Like I know nothing different. And so for this to be what I do now, I feel so perfectly cut out for it because it really, you know, on the one hand, like, yeah, it was a lot of stress. It was a lot of responsibility, but it was so much stewardship. It is so energizing for me. Like I'm getting hype thinking about it right now. Like When I read the essays of my students, when I have them analyze things from the 1970s and apply it to their present context and apply it to themselves, I get emotional because it is a spiritual experience. People are transforming their understandings in real time with me. And that is a vulnerable, sacred experience that I get to be a steward and shepherd of. So I I really believe that learning is the other religion that I belong to. I love that learning is the other religion that I belong to. I mean, that feels like so important, especially in the context of, of how you're kind of talking about intelligence and education, about how I, I think if I'm hearing you well, it's not necessarily like, quote unquote, knowing something or getting something right or up to a certain standard. But I think I'm hearing from you, it, it is such almost an embodied experience that intersects with every other part of life. Yes. It's knowing to your own understanding. It is that democratized Islam that I I learned that I came into when I was becoming Muslim. Whenever I do an essay question like, or an essay or just kind of anything, I'm not coming to, what's the right answer? I'm not coming to that. And I think that that was really different from the, the religiosity that I had growing up. It was like, what is the correct interpretation? What is the correct this? 
And honestly, whatever resonates with you is correct. As long as it's not harmful or dehumanizing to other people, whatever you determine to be to your own understanding can help you understand. And that's some of my best teachers. When we would analyze things like analyzing poetry or analyzing an essay or a book, like one, (laughs) this will be a fun one. When I was in 10th grade, we were reading The Great Gatsby. And I thought that The Great Gatsby was a black man. And... That's not what F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote him to be, but that's what made sense for me because I wanted to see that. That's what I needed from that text. And the reasoning for that was he was a man who had to hide where he came from. He couldn't go to his own parties because it would ruin his facade. And he was trying to achieve something that was denied to him because of social structures. That sounds to me like he was a Black person trying to, and it made sense for the time. Okay, it could have been Harlem Renaissance. Like it made very much sense. And I'm actually going to be working on a, a similar story about that now that it's in the public domain. But I remember my teacher, she told me, she was like, that's not correct. But I'm really interested to see how you got to that conclusion. And she gave me an A on the paper anyway, because honestly, I demonstrated intelligence. I demonstrated that I was learning. I was applying the concepts and the historical context in a very advanced way that wasn't in line with the origins of the author, but made sense otherwise. And that I always go back to whenever I have an essay from a student who applies something in a way that I hadn't previously anticipated. Because the truth is, once we get past the artist or the creator or the originator of a work and we ask someone to apply it to themselves, we can't tell them that they are wrong because they are applying something to themselves. And that's a beautiful way to demonstrate understanding. And it's something that is very individualized. And I think that part of learning has to be honoring that because I would much rather grade for that type of comprehension than to grade for structure or to grade for, did you meet, how many sentences was it? If you can get it to me in under 500 words, amazing. After that, I'm looking for how you applied the understanding to yourself. And I have so many people who would say, I would never volunteer for an essay writing contest or for an essay writing opportunity. Because when I talk about my students, Matthias, I'm literally talking about the 400,000 students that I educate every day on my Instagram page. This isn't graded. Well, it's graded, but it's not accredited. It's really taking on this opportunity to expand your own understanding with somebody who's familiar with the works and do that together. And I call it Smartiopolis University. And (laughs) it's a really fun experience. And I cannot read these essays without crying because it feels absolutely so divine that these individual people who are strangers to me otherwise have decided to engage with something completely voluntarily, not knowing what to expect on the other side of it because they want to better themselves or get to a new understanding. Hey, y'all, I wanted to tell you about a new resource that I have up on my website. It's a masterclass that I recorded with Linda K. Klein. If you haven't heard of Linda, she's the author of the book Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. So Linda and I, last year, sat down and recorded a masterclass called Four Practices You Can Start Now to Move Beyond Shame. If you were around for my book launch, you're you're aware we were giving away that for free. Now we're making it available to everyone. So if you want that masterclass, it's free. (laughs) Just head over to my website, MatthiasRoberts.com. It'll be the first 
thing that you see on there. Just click, I want the masterclass, put in your email address, and I will send you the masterclass right away. Four practices you can start now to move beyond shame. It's an incredible resource. Most of it's Linda's work, really embodied practices that you can start wherever you are at on your journey with shame. So highly recommend it. MatthiasRoberts.com. Hope you enjoy it. You're talking about this really kind of individualized approach to kind of learning and understanding. And I also see like in the work that you're doing, in the educational work you're doing on your platform, there's so much opportunity and invitation to kind of challenge some of the individualization that we've picked up from being, you know, enculturated kind of in Western U.S. white culture world. And and, and so I'm, I'm really curious, like how even how those two things intersect, because I'm I'm hearing you say, make it your own. I also see you challenging a lot. Yes, of make it collective. It, right, right. Say more about that. Okay, so the term I think that you're searching for just then is Eurocolonial. And I talk about this in my new book. Eurocolonial speaks to European colonization. And so that's more accurate than to say Western, because when we say Western, we're still placing Western Europe as the center of the world. And there's a lot of ways we do that. For example, Greenwich Mean Time, GMT, that's how we base our, our time zones. And that's literally the UK. And so that's just a fun fact, but also one of the ways that Eurocentricity shows up in our everyday lives. And there is such an individualization, but it's not an individualization like I'm discussing. It's an individualization that defines humanity under the Enlightenment era rubric of a self-described, defined, and self-benefiting prophecy created by European Enlightenment era scholars. So they said, this is what it means to be a human. And they're using themselves as the rubric, how beneficial to them and to Eurocolonial embodied people who are cisgender, heterosexual, white-skinned, and from, you know, Western Europe, and how harmful to literally everyone else. (laughs) And when we even think about things like who is a human, it is not people like me. It is not even people like yourself, Matthias. It's folks who fit into this definition. And whenever we talk about things like queerness or different religions or different gender expressions or the ways that we arrange our families, if we are outside of this Eurocolonial definition, then we lose privilege or access to the things that they define as basic human rights. It's why they can say all men are created equal and still enslave Africans and still enslave and dispossess indigenous peoples in the Americas and from Africa because they're not defining man to include us. It's specifically defining humanity outside of that. And so when we apply the understanding of human rights, well, guess what? People who are human are not always ordained as having rights because of the narrow way that we define humanity. So when we look at individualism in the Eurocolonial context, it's saying individual white cisgender heterosexual Christian Protestant men and everyone else can be screwed off you know or be enslaved or dispossessed so when I'm saying apply it to the individual it's decolonizing that understanding of what the individual is and so much of what I do thanks to my understanding from Dr. Shea Kilmicklean is apparently decolonizing human interaction 
not thinking I'm going to treat you under the way I assume you want to be treated, but I'm going to treat you how you want to be treated. And I'm going to be so present with you that I'm going to determine what that is. And it is so exciting to me because it's very possible, it's very real, and it's very necessary to do everything from not being on autopilot, not saying, hello, sir, hello, ma'am, and assuming that you're showing respect to somebody while you're misgendering them, and actually realizing that when we say sir and ma'am, we're participating in classism and saying, I'm subordinate to you especially in the context of the United States, when that has to do with race, when it has to do with ableism, and so many other aspects that are very narrowly defining who the individual that is being honored is, and instead transforming that. And it's just saying like, you know, I deserve to exist. I don't need to figure out who I am. I know who I am. And sometimes we often live in a world where we are told to articulate that not to ourselves, but to others, so that they can determine how or if we deserve rights. Even racialization. I've grappled a lot with this as I've been writing my book and talking about the history of race. I mean, I I have to laugh because it is so infuriating, but over the past 600 years, for example, let's talk about Benjamin Rush. He was one of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, one of those founding fathers we love to talk about on Fox News. (laughs) And He believed that Black people, Black-skinned people, had a form of leprosy called negroidism, which doesn't exist, and that with proper care and diet and treatment, they could become white again and then become whole humans. And he wrote these things in such, you know, he will say one sentence in this essay where he talks about it, talking about how it is a great humanity and a reflection of human ignorance that Black people are treated and enslaved and, you know, horrifically treated— And you're like, okay, Benjamin Rush, okay, points are made. And then the next sentence he's saying, they are afflicted by a disease. They should deserve our compassion. They need to be healed. And it's like, okay, that sounds like some gross faith healing that you're talking about. And he was one of the people that signed the Declaration of Independence. And so to say that this country isn't founded on some nonsense is also nonsense. But to also realize that so many people don't know, not because they aren't intelligent, but because that information is intentionally obscured, because to be honest, it's embarrassing that so much of this is built on assumptions. And the assumptions truly make an ass out of everyone. (laughs) Um, Another example of this is Carl Linnaeus. Carl Linnaeus, great Swedish figure, botanist, scientific racist, who said that humans come in six variations, including wild people, Homo sapiens ferris, white people, Homo sapiens europaeus coming from Europe, Homo sapiens africanus, black people from Africa, Homo sapiens asiaticus, yellow people coming from Asia, Homo sapiens americanus, red people coming from the Americas, and then Homo sapiens monstrosus, monster people, bro. Like what? Linnaeus. And of course, we don't hear about the wild people and the monster people when textbooks reiterate what he was saying. They say, oh, he was very scientific. He connected the red, black, yellow, and uh, white to the four humors, phlegm, bile, black bile, yellow bile, all very scientific nonsense. But it sounds, okay, well, that, that has a pattern. Okay, that goes back to Hippocrates. I guess there's yellow people, red people, black people, and white people. I mean, I can see that. But dude, this guy also said monster people and wild people. Like, that's literally such proof that he didn't know what he was talking about. And we don't talk about those things. And so my goal is not to bash people over the head or embarrass them for not knowing something, but to embarrass the people that did the wrong thing and whose like ideologies are what we continue to build things on. Like, I think it was 1890, 
1898, the United States, oh no, it was 1890, the United States census declared what the racial categories would be. And they used that same thing from people like Blumenbach and other scientific racists and people like Linnaeus, who literally said monster people is a valid category. And I feel in my bones, in my heart, that if we have more people who understand the unfounded nature of this, we will be freer because we will then know that not only is racism wrong, but the idea of race as something that we have to do to one another in the act of racialization, put people in boxes, that's not necessary because it is so unfounded. And the same thing, there's parallels with gender and sexuality, that we have to have a Eurocolonial binary of sex and gender. The fact is, we say things, well, not we, but, you know, in the medical industry or the medical field, they'll say there's ovaries and testes and then ovotesty syndrome. In all honesty, perhaps the fact is that there is a spectrum of ovaries, there's a spectrum of testes, and ovotestes is the catch-all that we use to not specifically name these other aspects because they don't fit into a binary that Aristotle decided on for zero reasons, other than to say that a citizen has to be someone with a penis and that only people with penises should get rights. Like, that's literally the reason why we have the gender binary. And so in my new book that comes out in October, I try to make all these things very plain and very clear. And the title is Get Smarter or Read This to Get Smarter because the fact is that who is smart and who isn't isn't a matter of who literally is and is not intelligent. It's a matter of who has access and who is tested in a way that they are allowed, that they are able to qualify for. And so I just want to make this collective information available because it's on the foundation of lies. And we can tell because every time there is a proverbial earthquake, like a moment of violence or a new understanding or a new scientific discovery, we figure out that actually these, these assumptions make no sense. Let's get back to the source material. Oh, look, turns out the source material is very unfounded. And I feel like there's so many parallels in religion because when we see things like, for example, being a queer Muslim, people always want to go to the prophet Lot story, the story of, you know, of Lot and his wife and the pillar of salt and Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if we look at the source material and we look at the ways that it's been reinterpreted for homophobic and cissexist reasons, and we look at the history of these different deluges and different cataclysms, And we understand that the human psyche is not meant to be abused or violated in terms of sexual violation or violation of boundaries. It makes a lot more sense and it reconciles a lot better for that story to not be about demeaning and denying the validity of same gender loving relationships, but for that to be a story condemning rape because we know that has psychological consequences. And the only thing that has to do with psychological consequences about people being queer is when people are forced to be closeted because of the misinterpretation of historical texts. And so being a historian, being an educator, being a a queer person of faith, being a Black person is this profound journey for me of helping people see the truths that have been obscured to intentionally oppress us, all of us, even those who benefit from it. Even you saying that kind of takes me back to where we started this conversation of of where you kind of talked about being bi, but not wanting to speak about that because of kind of the vastness of identities you already held. And I would love to talk a little bit more about kind of the by erasure in there because I I hear that so often from people who listen to this show of being like, well, if I'm in a straight passing relationship, I can't come out as bi because I don't want to X, Y, and Z. And I feel like that ties in so much even with what you're saying right here. I 
definitely had internalized biphobia, by erasure. And some of it came from a lot of it, honestly, most of it came from the only ways that bisexuality was discussed as something that like didn't exist and, or something that like some celebrity was hiding from their family and ruining their family with, instead of maybe the fact that they were forced to straight pass was the violation, not the fact that they are who they are, but that nuance escaped all of everything, especially in the early 2000s. And honestly, the first time I saw like a bisexual person talk about being bisexual was Tila Tequila. And you know, we'll find our role models wherever we can get them, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember vividly, like when Facebook rolled out, like, you know, interested in, and we could mark that, right? When Facebook was popping off and MySpace was dying, I was like, I would never put that. I would never put the truth that I'm interested in, not just men, because that wouldn't be good. What would that look like? Like, that's not real. And it goes back, honestly, let's get back into the history. It goes back to, um, what's his name? Oh, Kinsey. Kinsey. The Kinsey Report. Okay, so Kinsey got 100 white men together at bars. Great sample size, by the way, Kinsey. (laughs) And decided to have white men deciding all of sexuality using only white men at bars in one specific region. And deciding to make a six-point scale from exclusively homosexual to exclusively heterosexual. And say that's all of human sexuality. And it's based on previous sexual history. So what does that mean for queer young people who don't have a sexual history? Well, for me, I decided that meant that I will just use the people I've had crushes on. So I went to the Kinsey Report because it sounds very scientific and has, honestly, it was revolutionary. Let's not knock that. Like a lot of people were able to determine, hey, gay people exist and that's real. But the other harm is that it said bisexuals don't exist. You're just 50% gay and 50% straight. Even the idea of straight, which emerged as terminology during the 40s, was meant to determine somebody who didn't deviate. So being queer meant having a deviation. You're you're going away from what you're supposed to be doing and kind of being closeted, hiding your truth. All of these euphemisms made me feel, as a queer kid who was born in the 90s, far after this stuff had happened, that if I didn't come out, I wasn't telling the truth. I was living a lie. I was hiding myself. And that's because of this, like, two-part episode of Degrassi where Marcos came out and, like, you know, it was great television, but it was also really harmful because I felt like, oh my gosh, if I don't tell my mom who I am, I'm cheating her. I'm, I'm da da da. You know, like all these lies. Because the fact is that if we can't come out, it's not our fault. It's the reality of the society that we live in that only tells queer people to come out and that puts us away to come out from somewhere in the first place. And so when I did come out, I kind of never felt like I was doing something wrong. I thought I was a lesbian. My issue was that I didn't know bisexuality was a thing. And so, like I said, I plotted myself, I think, like at a four, you know, more than incidentally homosexual, but primarily straight, which that's not science, Kinsey. Uh, And I remember sitting my mother down very dramatically, and I told her, I was like, Mom, I'm a lesbian. And she was like, Blair, I think you're bisexual. (laughs) And I was, first of all, very upset because you're not supposed to steal somebody's thunder when they come out. But I was also like, what is that? And we went to like Glad's website. And recently for my book, I went back into the archives and I looked at the definition of bisexuality. And one of the things that Glad had added back in like, I think it was like 2008, was that you don't have to have a sexual history or equal sexual history with people of different genders to be bisexual. And I was like, dope, because I'm like 14 or 15 or however old I was. (laughs) And it was also really validating, but a lot of the, the music that was out, like, like I kissed a girl and I liked it. Like it all very much sounded like 
queerness was something flippant, something that was not a valid part of who we are, but something that you explored and experimented with, not something that we actually are. Like, even when we talk about identifying, we identify these ways because we are. And it's important to identify ourselves, but not always to other people. And so the biphobia was just the erasure. Like, I think there were episodes of like Will and Grace or episodes of Friends, which talked about bisexuality, but did this in a very like, oh, how funny that this person doesn't know who they are. And as, you know, a mixed heritage Black person, I, or multi-heritage Black person, because again, the mixed race thing, that that's a fun fact. That actually comes from Charles Darwin saying that when biologically distinct races reproduce, they create new races, which isn't true. Um, Darwin was an interesting one. Anyway, so, but even with that, that kind of narrative, it was the, oh, you don't fit into any world. You don't fit into the white world. You don't fit into the black world. And the same thing with bisexuality. You don't fit into the straight world. You don't fit into the gay world. It's like, honestly, if we look at the LGBTQ plus community, we make up the biggest percentage that we know of, but we also have the data because of heteronormativity. And so I I just remember declaring, you know, on Facebook when I looked, I was like, I'm just not going to say what I'm interested in because that's true. It's like, if, if I don't say it, that's not a lie, but I'm not going to lie and be straight passing because that's not true to me either. But I felt like it was such a impossibility to say what was true to me. And that was so many different things. Like even my first like long-term girlfriend, us being able to declare that to each other. Like we had, (laughs) we were sitting down at a a lunch table. This is in high school and our new friend, because the the girl who I was dating, she was new to the school too. And this other girl who was one of our friend groups had also joined the school at that time. She sits down and just starts going on like an anti-gay diatribe. And we were just like, okay, she sucks. And then we started having a conversation together about queerness. And then we came out to each other, like, you know, during a football game, we were watching the football game and we came out to each other. And she was like, just so you know, I'm kind of gay. And I was like, I'm kind of gay. And then I was like, are we dating? (laughs) And then that's ended up being how it worked because it was so undefined. Like there's so many teen dramas about, I mean, there's infinite teen dramas about, about cis and straight teens, but there weren't about queer teens. And I didn't have a understanding that I could just be myself. It didn't have to be on TV. And it was so abstract. And so when I was in relationships, when I was declaring my truth, I was doing it in a way where I never felt bad for being myself. And I think that oftentimes that's a a truth many people hold. We know who we are, but it's when we have to go and tell other people that it's difficult. And I think that's a really important complication to hold and an important nuance to sit with because I wasn't trying to say, oh, well, I'm in a straight passing relationship. I'm afraid of saying that I'm bisexual. It was that, okay, well, this isn't even understood. Why complicate it? And that's also why I would say I was queer instead of saying I was bisexual. One, I think queer sounds cooler than bisexual, which sounds very like like homosexual. It sounds very clinical to me. And it's funny now because my initials that I chose when, when I converted to Islam, I chose the last name Imani, not even realizing that my initials would become BI. So like <laughs> on brand, not even knowing it. But it was because I felt like I was already too much for this world that says that white, cis, straight people are just people and that anyone else has to declare who they are in infinite detail in order to be validated. And I just felt like, okay, well, let me not complicate other people's understanding of me even more, which sucks because it wasn't me deciding that for me. 
It was me feeling like I had to shelter others from my full truth. And the, and, and the fact is I don't. I'm myself every single day. I'm that same person. And I don't have to masquerade as something else or obscure parts of myself for the comfort of other people. In fact, who I am and being myself brings comfort to other people in many cases because they realize for themselves that they can hold those complexities and be validated. And I feel like you hold this kind of, I don't know if you'd call it attention or not there, between those parts of you that are holding these identities and kind of being out there and in public with them. And also, I see you often putting up boundaries around, you know, I don't need to explain that to you. Like, that that's not actually my job. And, and, and I really appreciate the way, like, even the way you're talking about it, like, both of those things are kind of held together. Both that I'm going to talk about this and also I'm going to put up boundaries too. And I'm curious about that as someone who like, I just, you know, have a hard time with boundaries. <laughs> you know, you it's been funny. So well. <laughs> I, I've been explaining this to my mom quite a bit because she sees it like, okay. I think from my, from my mom's vintage point, she's someone who sets boundaries all the time, especially like physical boundaries. And I think that sometimes when we want to be perceived as kind and nice and polite and grateful to people, we acquiesce and give up the parts of ourselves that we want to keep to ourselves, you know? And I think that that's not, I think, I know that that's extremely complicated by systems of oppression. If somebody is pregnant, I see so often that people will just come and touch that person's belly. I haven't seen this during COVID, hopefully, but it's just like, okay, well, I'm just going to allow all of the views that society has about the bodies of people who are pregnant and completely violate your space because you're supposed to be grateful that I'm excited for you and that this is something exciting and that my excitement is more important than your actual experience. And so much of our interactions are on autopilot and that that autopilot was programmed by Eurocolonialism. And so when we take that, you know, wheel into our own hand or whatever you use to fly a plane, <sighs> steering <laughs> column, what, <laughs> I'll say I have wheel. no idea. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you take that steering <laughs> column into your own hands and take it off of autopilot, you're decolonizing that experience and being intentional and being present with other people. And so I'm an educator, but I'm not Google. And that is important for me to say, because when I say that, it's not because I'm targeting one person. It's because I have 400,000 people demanding things of me every single day. And they need to know that that's not okay to do. Because if they don't know that that's not okay to do, they will do it. And then I will have to face those consequences of being stressed out. Or the consequence sometimes is being burnt out and unable to engage with the people that do want to engage with me as a whole person and be appropriate with me and be respectful to me. And so even when I talk about things like being appropriate and respectful versus being kind and polite, that's because kind and polite are very abstract terms and they're intentionally vague. And I think that being respectful, we have a better understanding of respect is, and it sounds much more definitive, and, and being appropriate is much more definitive than being kind and polite. And, and that's an important differentiation to make. I need you to be respectful with me. And if kindness is part of that, beautiful, but at least honor the fact that I'm a whole other person as well. And that doesn't mean being best friends with everybody, but it means understanding that, hey, even if I can't stand the decision that you just made or the way that you spoke up about something, you're also a person. And so I'm considering, like, what are you going through? What is the previous behavior? Is it, do I need to go into this with assuming positive intentions or just at least neutral intentions? And so the way that I think about boundaries is 
it's not the case. And I was talking about this with my my best friend, Ren, yesterday. It's not the case that when somebody sets a boundary, it's because they don't trust you. It's actually them inviting you in to demonstrate your trustworthiness, which is really exciting because it's saying like, hey, when we have long-term relationships and we decide to trust someone, it's because they've demonstrated their trustworthiness. Trust does need to be earned. Respect is not. Everyone deserves respect, but not everyone deserves our trust because that's much more vulnerable, kind of interconnected, interlocking experience. And so when I, you know, say, oh, okay, this is what I need to feel safe and honored in this, in this circumstance, and then you honor that, amazing. We've just gone up a level in our friendship or in our connection. And I think that we have to remember that we don't belong to everyone. I do believe that we can be stewards of one another and that we can be, we can serve each other and be in service to other people, right? It's that communal nature. But to understand that our existence is also an individual one and that must be honored and that we decide how, when, and if other people engage with our personhood and on what terms. And then also respect when other people declare that for themselves. And that's something really important and difficult because we do not live in a society that respects that. When somebody doesn't want to hug, they're a weirdo. It's not weird that we're pressing our fronts together every time we see each other. (laughs) And so when I talk about boundaries, I remind people that you don't have to know why the boundary exists. And as long as that boundary is something that is specific to me and isn't harmful or isn't dehumanizing, then it's a positive thing or at least a neutral thing or, or just something that should be respected because when we have the inverse, which is when, you know, I'm going to let the autopilot set by Eurocolonialism decide how I'm treated, I'm going to get treated worse than somebody who is a white, straight, cisgender man because Eurocolonialism already autopiloted that that person gets treated better. And that's why it's important to, to deconstruct those things. And once you get into it, it becomes a very natural habit. When somebody reaches out to me and they start emotionally kind of treating me like a dumping ground, I have to really say, okay, well, I don't have the capacity for this right now. And that's not because I don't love them or I don't respect them or I don't have compassion for them. It's just what is the truth. And so that's been really helpful. For example, when I have queer young people reach out to me and they might have a very traumatic story or being even expressing things like suicidal ideation, I'm not a trained intervention counselor. I, I have had that training before, but one, I cannot make the promise of doing that because then I run the risk of people reaching out to me expecting that service and me failing them and potentially that having a negative mental health outcome, which is really grave and dire. And then there's other aspects of there's so many services that do exist specifically for that. And so what I said in this specific instance was, you know, I see you, I hear you, I have, you know, empathy and compassion for what you're going through. Here are some resources. And then I can pass them to resources that are created specifically to help them. So I'm not overextending myself in a way that's detrimental to me and honestly detrimental to them because I'm not prepared to do that in a comprehensive manner, but I'm respecting their humanity. I'm also creating a boundary. I think when we think of boundaries, we think that that interaction would go like, don't talk to me about that. (laughs) But that's not what is compassionate in that that circumstance. But what I can do is ahead of time when I set my, you know, I have a, a highlight on my Instagram that says, start here. I can say things like, my page isn't for venting, but if you do need res- if you need resources, try to do some research on your own. And if you still need questions, come to me. And what I end up having is sometimes folks reaching out to me and saying, Blair, I went through your, your, your roadmap of how to reach out. And I ended up answering my own question. That's actually much better because then I'm also, even when I'm taking a nap, sleeping, doing something else, playing video games, whatever, I'm still doing a lesson of teaching people that they have the tools to save themselves. They don't need a savior in me. 
I love that. Uh, Blair, uh, how can people find you and your work? Oh, well, you can find me definitely on Instagram. I'm all over that place. I also have my YouTube channel where I post my Smarter in Seconds series. It's also on Instagram, but not everybody's on, on Instagram. I'm completely off Twitter because it's a cesspool of hate. And <laughs> <the> <laughs> I'm also on Patreon. Um, and my book, Read This to Get Smarter, comes out in the fall. And um, it's just really a, a blessing to be someone who teaches and learns with people on a, on, on a daily basis. And so that that is my queerology. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's just such a treat to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me as well. And everyone stay hydrated, be well, and remember to rest, not to be more productive, but because it's what you deserve. You can find Blair across the internet at Blair Amani. Be sure to go pick up copies of her books wherever you buy books and watch for that new book coming out this fall. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear in the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye! Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.